Sit down if you want to. Right in the middle of what's going on. I'm in the middle of an interrogation. Take a seat, young Skywalker. The middle children of history, man. Middle of the day, Alfred. Please, take a seat there. Right now, I'm in the middle of nowhere. Stop the middle of the base hit! Meeting in the middle. Fight, fight. They fought for the freedom of middle. 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 The middle of the middle of the middle. The middle of a war. Freaking ridiculous. Why don't we have a seat to talk about? No, not the middle seat. One small step for movies, one giant leap for your listening pleasure, and that is the Middle Seats Podcast, the best seat in the house for all things movies and entertainment. Welcome. I am your pilot tonight, Mr. Andrew Ojay. Let's meet my passengers. He's a man you'd want to have some bad times with at a dingy motel. Mr. Nate Lungarini, how are you doing today? <laughs> I'm doing. Are you sure that isn't Jake's intro there? Oh, no. I got one <laughs> brewing up for him. Don't worry. Yeah. I was going to say, that's Nate's. I can't even imagine what mine is. And speaking of Mr. Jake Hensler, he probably thinks that the moon landing is fake. Jake, hello. <laughs> uh, hey. <laughs> that's it <laughs> I'm trying not to be pessimistic when you try and call me pessimistic oh god you don't have to be monotonous about it come on come <laughs> come back at me alright we'll save that for another day because we've got a lot to do on this week's episode for the Middle Seats Podcast as I mentioned off the top we are the best seat in the house for all things movies and entertainment the show works like this usually our show is divided into three segments we talk about a topic that one of the crew pitches with our lobby talk then we talk about the biggest news of the week with news, and then we move into our feature review of the biggest movie of the week. This week, for the second straight week, we have two big releases. Not one, but two that we feel like we need to get to. So, as we did with the A Star is Born and Venom episode, which if you haven't listened to it yet, listen on SoundCloud, YouTube, uh, wherever else you can find things. Download it on your Walkman or something. I don't know. Um, I don't we know. are going to do Lobby Talk, and then we're going to move into our double review of Damien Chazelle's First Man and Drew Goddard's Bad Times at the El Royale, two of my most anticipated movies of the year. I think the general crew would agree as well. Would you guys agree? For sure. Yeah, I'm glad you're not speaking for me, but yeah. Right, that's why I asked. I qualified <laughs> See, I'm trying to be nice here. Uh, speaking of being nice, I'm going to pitch it off to my friend Nate, who is going to get into lobby talk. Let's all go to the lobby. You're in the lobby? What do you look like? before you can make the lobby all right so we're in the midst of october which got me thinking about halloween and we also just saw first man which got me thinking about space and that got me thinking about both those things and here's a long-winded segue into my lobby talk which is crazy sequels in space and the one that really sticks out to me is the infamous Jason X from ha. the Friday the 13th franchise that inexplicably went to space for no reason. You know what's really funny? Uh, yeah. I was watching, I'm watching the Halloween movies as we get closer to the new Halloween. And in Halloween 5 or 6, they make a joke about how ridiculous it would be if Michael Myers went to space. And I just picture the Jason X producers like watching that scene and being like, that's brilliant. I got it. We got it, guys. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So here's the premise, boys. Pitch me a movie that either has a sequel or a full-on remake, but in space. What is the funniest thing that you can think of? Let's start with Jake. All right. Um, it's funny you guys brought up Halloween because I actually thought that could be comedic, like watching them. Because Michael Myers only walks to begin with. 
So watching him try and chase after them, walking in space, I could see being completely comedic. But then I thought if it's on a spaceship and, and actually getting somewhere, that would be terrifying. So I scrapped that real quick. And then I was thinking like Deadpool, Anchorman, but that's funny no matter what. And then, then I settled on what I think could be a winner. A sequel to The Room in Space. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> what I'm thinking is, so Tommy Wiseau lives. Spoiler, he, he dies at the end of The Room, but he lives and he's in a hospital. And they, so NASA accidentally picks him to help colonize a new planet and he convinces his buddy <laughs> to go with him and they, they completely mix up him and someone else. So they think they're sending somebody qualified and they're obviously not. It's Tommy Wiseau. And he and Greg Sestero go to space to try and colonize a new planet and just whatever kind of messed up shenanigans they get into, trying to colonize a new planet by themselves. Maybe a the casting is on point. Tommy Wiseau is already an alien. Right. <laughs> exactly. And maybe a couple of ragtag people on top of it try and help them, but it's really on them. Well, I was going to say, they're not sending any women so that there's, like, you know, people to start a settlement with. Well, I mean, they would start off by, like, by like getting off the ship, throwing a football, and it just drifting off. <laughs> <laughs> That's a pretty great opening shot. <laughs> no. I love it. I'd watch it. That's for sure. I, I yeah. would love to watch that. <laughs> you you got to get me a very strong drink first, but yes, I would oh, love yeah. to watch it. <laughs> nice. How about you, Drew? What do you got? So right off the bat, I'm a bad listener because I saw this and the first thing I thought of was not a movie. Um, But it is a form of entertainment. It is a television show. And the way I approach this is I have like a style of humor and a lot of people have this style of humor where something is really funny to me if they don't like draw attention to it. Like it's just part of the world that you live in. You know, it's like normal average everyday things happening, Mm -hmm. but like just in an absurd setting. Like, right. I think that stuff is really funny. And the show I thought of, what if we had a version of The Office, but we had it up in space? And, like, you know, space <laughs> is a part of the backdrop, but we treat it like it's as mundane as Dunder Mifflin. Like, there's big pranks. Like, somebody steals someone's tang. Somebody accidentally gets stuck in, like, cryo-freeze. There's different paperwork they have to fill out, but the paper floats away towards Saturn and they have to go get it. Like, shit like that. Like, <laughs> yeah, I'm sure Dwight would have a million and one things to do in space and Jim oh would ruin God, it. Oh, my God, yes. Jim would ruin all of it. <laughs> right. Just the idea that, like, this is completely normal to them. And if you were laughing at them, they'd be like, what's so funny? Like, Michael Scott in space? Like, come on. Or Creed Bratton hints at, like, being there before. Right. <laughs> Creed can be Jason from Jason X. Like, that would be pretty cool. <laughs> I'm just picturing Dwight's wedding in spacesuits. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> can you imagine Moe's in spa- space trying to, like, harvest the moon with, like, beets and stuff? And, like... <laughs> yeah. oh, the this, this soil's not working. Call Matt Damon. <laughs> and I'm, I'm sure there were other options. Like, I'm sure, like, this kind of premise for, like, office space would also be kind of funny. Like, there are movies that are like this, but that's the first thing that came to my mind. Yeah, good stuff so far. I like it. That's a good pitch there, Drew. Here's mine, boys. In a similar vein... I want the movie to remain completely straight-faced, but I feel like just having it in space would make it absolutely hilarious, specifically in like a space walk kind of setting with the full suits and everything. And my pitch is Titanic. <laughs> I just, I want a romantic drama where everyone's in big bulky spacesuits. Like, can you picture them trying to make out, like, through the glass of their helmets? Right. (laughs) And it gets all foggy. Yeah. Accidentally, like, 
lifting him up and king of the world and then just falling off the spaceship and drifting into <laughs> and just, zero uh, gravity. No, 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 no. <laughs> the, the rocket hits an asteroid. The painting scene is her just laying in a thinner astronaut suit. <laughs> yep. <laughs> I, I just think it'd be hilarious. And, of course, the big crescendo would be the sinking of the Titanic. Pl- plummeting to Comet Earth. Comet or asteroid or something. <laughs> or, like, how about the never-let-go scene, but because they're both just drifting in zero gravity, they just kind of orbit around each other. Right. It's <laughs> <laughs> uh, so th- cold. Their fingertips get so close. There's a hole in my spacesuit, Jack. Uh, sorry, <laughs> there's no more room aboard this spaceship. <laughs> just move over, Jack. <laughs> I gotta be honest, I didn't think any of us would touch historical fiction <laughs> and, and translate it to something that, like, did not happen. But right. I, I'd watch that. You know what? <laughs> if there can be two animated versions of the Titanic where one of them has a rapping dog in it and the other has, like, an octopus that talks, I think we can disrespect the Titanic a little bit more and just make it in space. I'm down with it. Some food for thought. We want to hear your idea. If you had to take a movie and put it in space... Where would you put it? Uh, submit your answers to our YouTube page, our Facebook page, wherever you want to send them, the middle seats show at gmail.com. For all your answers, we're looking forward to hearing from you. That will do it for a lobby talk. And we are going to transition now into our double review. Speaking of space, let's go to where man has never gone before with First Man. First man to walk on the moon. That'd be something. Only after we master these tasks. Do we consider trying to land on the moon? Neil, if this flight is successful, you'll go down in history. The vehicle's not safe. We need to fail down here so we don't fail up there. Do you think you're coming back? There are risks, but we have every intention of coming back. We've got this under control. You're a bunch of boys. You don't have anything under control. Five, four... Three, two. First Man is directed by Wonderkin, one of the auteurs of the 21st century that has made his big breakout in the last five or six years, Damien Chazelle, best known for Whiplash and, of course, winning Best Director for La La Land a couple of years ago. It spans the time from 1961 to 1968, Ryan Gosling reteams with Chazelle. He's Neil Armstrong. Armstrong's an engineer in NASA who is among those working to try and beat the Soviets to the moon. You guys know kind of the process of what happens. Eventually, he's part of the Apollo 11 mission, the first man ever to walk on the moon. I don't think it's a spoiler to say that. I think you guys know that. It gets into a lot of the dangers of the mission, plus tension inside his family. Claire Foy plays Janet Armstrong, his supportive but stern wife. There's Corey Stoll as Buzz Aldrin. Kyle Chandler, Jason Clark, just a really good collection of actors coming together to make this movie with Damien Chazelle. Now, guys, of course, La La Land and Whiplash are two movies that are really hard to follow up, and space movies in general have a high bar over the last couple of years. Uh, No matter what you think about Interstellar, it's a good movie. Gravity, all over and over and over, these movies have impressed. Where does First Man rank among those terms? What do you think of it as a film? Let's start with you, Nate. All right, so I'm a sucker for space movies, so I definitely went in with some high expectations here. First Man is directed incredibly well. 
Damien Chazelle really has a lot of props for me from his last two films. Um, I love Whiplash, and La La Land is very, very, very good. And I can see a common theme with a lot of his work, where his main characters are really passionate about something, and then there's pushback from the rest of the movie. Uh, and it's all about kind of overcoming all that pushback to see your passion. So we saw that with music from the last two films, and now we're seeing it here with the space program. And this movie is significantly colder than his last two, mostly from Ryan Gosling's performance as Neil Armstrong. Uh, he's portrayed as very emotionally detached, and the whole movie definitely just amplifies that reaction. I don't really want to go too deep into what I thought about that storyline, um, but it was definitely just different than what I was expecting. A lot of these space movies deal with hope as their theme and like how cool going to space is for the human race. And this movie takes a much more grounded approach. It deliberately takes off the rose-colored glasses that a lot of people feel about this event and really just takes you into the moment of uncertainty of like, is going to the moon really worth it? And I was I was definitely intrigued by the results, um, and I'll, I'll leave it at that for right now. That's a pretty intriguing tease. We'll get back to him in a second. First, Jake, what did you think of First Man? I know you love both of his previous movies. Yeah, um, I'm a little stingy with really, really high ratings as well as really, really low ratings. I give Whiplash and La La Land both 9.5 out of 10. I thought they were both absolutely unbelievable movies. I love both of them. So for me, I know this is obviously very different and not quite a passion project for him like the previous two. But regardless, I think he's a great director. So I had some pretty high expectations. And like Nate, I like space movies as well. I, I picked up on, on what you said as well. He um, He's very goal-oriented and kind of his family ends up taking a backseat and begrudgingly so. And he's pretty much like, well, I love you guys, but like this is very important as well. And there's a lot of that in you know both of his other movies. Um, I think he's really good at portraying that as a director. And I think he overall as a director just gets some unbelievable shots. Like, whoever he worked with as a cinematographer, they get some good stuff together. And I think he absolutely knows how to start and end a movie. I think in all three of his movies, starts off gripping and ends in, like, awe. That being said, I don't know, I'll be a little more upfront than Nate. I liked it a lot. I thought it was really good. There were some moments that I thought were slightly duller. I think some points between him interacting with his family could have been a bit more engaging. I know he's supposed to be emotionally uh, detached, like Nate said. But from an audience standpoint, I think we could have used a bit more engagement. I don't know, a tad more something. It seems like all the NASA space-oriented stuff was definitely handled a little bit better than the family stuff, I think. Not that it wasn't handled well, just I felt more interested in that stuff than the family stuff. But overall, I thought it was another really successful space movie. A really good follow-up for Chazelle. I think this probably cements him as one of the best directors working today. You know, a lot of people often ask, I would say probably all three of us, what is the marker of like a great director? And like, it's a hard answer to give on the spot. But something that I've been realizing more and more recently is there's like one specific formula that can help you determine, you know, there's all kinds of movies out there. And so many of them are just generic and all the same and all very similar. It's what the director does with the material that could be very basic, that 
cements their status as far as legendary or really great or just kind of mediocre and working with good scripts and good performances. Damien Chazelle three times now. If Whiplash, La La Land, or First Man are directed by other people, they're probably nowhere near as special. They still might be good movies, but they're nowhere near as special and stunning and memorable as they are when he's in the driver's seat. And it takes like a once-in-a-generational kind of talent to do that. It's really telling to me that First Man, which could have been like the normal biopic where we go through the ups and downs, it's Walk the Line, it's all these other movies that I don't mean to pick on Walk the Line. It's a good movie, (laughs) but that's my point. Like there are tiers of where these movies go. And First Man, in my opinion, is a great, great movie because of Damien Chazelle's talent and how he's able to make this story more interesting than anything we've seen before. We've seen space movies before, but what this movie really stresses is two main things that make it work really well. One, you guys kind of alluded to it before. Space movies are all about awe and wonder usually. This movie makes it clear how absolutely terrifying space is. Yeah, Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. There are scenes where we get the awe of like, wow, space is beautiful, and then it's immediately, just like that, like, oh shit, something's not breaking right now. We need to survive or we will drift out and die a very slow and painful death. Like You really feel the stakes. Exactly. You feel the stakes about a story that you know the ending to for the most part. Right. And I think that was, at least for me, like having confidence in Chazelle as a director, but thinking like making this gripping, interesting, and engaging could be tricky for so many people because we all know how it ends. We all know what happens in the end. Right. He's going to really need to find a way to make this really, really interesting still. And I think he absolutely accomplishes it. And I blame myself. I was kicking myself when I got out of this because, you know, when you just read that he's going to do a biopic about Neil Armstrong, like, okay, okay, I feel like I know how this story is going to go. I feel like it's going to be conventional. It'll be rock solid. But again, he plays with the expectations of what we know about this story and makes it about something different. It's about Neil. It's about Neil and his family. And I felt like I learned a lot about Neil Armstrong leaving this movie that I did not know Mm -hmm. before. Mostly that he was just kind of, you know, he was a nice guy. He got along with others, but when it really came down to it, work came first. Another thing going into it where I was like, oh, Ryan Gosling again, really? Uh, He couldn't find anybody else to play Neil Armstrong. He doesn't look like Neil Armstrong that much. But no, if this is how Neil Armstrong was, Ryan Gosling was the perfect person to play him because he is good at this subtle performance. I want to turn it back to you guys. Performance-wise, I thought he was great. I also thought Claire Foy was just as good as him. She was really good, and I think they're both going to garner awards attention, and I'll open it back up. Uh, Performance-wise, what are you guys thinking? Yeah, this movie needed Claire Foy because she is the emotional center of this movie because she's really the only one who emotes throughout the entire film. Right. Yeah, that's true. She's in this incredibly tough position where she's literally watching... Neil's co-workers die in the accidents leading up to the Apollo 11 mission, knowing that her husband could very well be in that same boat. And he is perfectly content giving his life to this program. Uh, He literally says during the film, we need to um, make mistakes on the ground, not up there. And he's okay if he's one of those mistakes. So Claire Foy is in this incredibly difficult position playing his wife. Yeah, and I think... She's she's consistently good, but there are a couple of specific scenes that, um, as an actress, she needed to get, and she she definitely did. Um, so, like you said, right like right before he goes on his big expedition, nails that scene, um, and then another one when he he is in space as a 
different kind of test run, and she goes to NASA headquarters, another one. At least those two were really important for her to get as an actress, and she got them really, really well. Throwing her passion and anger and emotions out there, and and then Ryan Gosling is consistently good as well. I don't know if there's one... I don't have to think about it. Not off the top of my head, there's one that he nailed, but he is consistently, for two hours and 20 minutes, very good. Very yes. good as well. Like, he has a very steady... She has the very big show, showy, emotional moments. And they really yeah. do hit you. Like, she nails those scenes. She's a really talented actress. Uh, and I'm glad she's kind of on the come up. Uh, for those of you who don't know who she is, uh, she is probably best known for Netflix's The Crown. Right. Uh, she's going to be the new girl with the dragon tattoo. Yeah, she's on the come up. Like, you're going to be seeing a lot more of her. And this movie shows why. She's just – she is really good at going – through different emotions and just feeling like a real person, you know, like mm, that's really in, that's really underrated. Going back to Chazelle a little bit, I didn't get to like this movie is gorgeous. It's oh so beautiful. Oh my god, yeah, one hundred and ten percent will be nominated for cinematography. I'm like, if it somehow wasn't nominated for anything else, cinematography one hundred percent will be there. There are some beautiful, unbelievable shots as well as some really intense gripping shots like the opening scene i felt like i was right in there and i was nervous as hell for what the hell was going on like you could tell what's going on but it's shaky at the same time um just all the little glimpses of his face with the reflection of his helmet at the same time just little things like that just tell stories on their own and i was just uh, even blown away from the very first scene yeah we kind of alluded to this earlier um where we showed just how terrifying space is and the cinematography really comes into full force there because this movie holds its cards and doesn't give you like those big glory shots that we're used to seeing from space movies until like key moments. Most of the launches are always from the perspective of the astronauts and that's where you get the sense of terror because you're literally claustrophobic. There's lots of close-ups. You can sometimes see a little bit out the window, but not a lot. Um, the whole mm -hmm. camera is shaking and you really get it for what these rocket launches were. We were sending people up in essentially glorified tin cans thousands of miles per hour yeah. into the into space. Into right. the unknown. It was absolutely terrifying. It was not safe, period. Yeah. And you absolutely get the sense of it here. Um, so when those glory shots do come around where you see um, the rocket taking off from a distance, when you do see um, us landing on the moon for the first time, and the camera pivots from those shaky shots to that long static take. It's such a jump and it makes those shots seem all the more beautiful because we haven't seen those throughout the entire movie. Right. And and Chazelle really knows when to show you, what to show you, how to show you. He's just got such a knack for a uh, for a director. I mean, he's the youngest director ever to win to win the Oscar for best director. So I mean, I can imagine he's just going to keep putting amazing stuff out there. He's just a master of all the elements is yeah, what Yeah, he just struck knows me. what he's doing. Like, cinematography, amazing. Like, But we've seen a lot of movies that are boring with good cinematography. He knows when Justin Hurwitz's score, again, doing great work after La La Land, should yep. come in and when it should come out. He knows when to play with the silence of space with sound effects and stuff. That's something that a lot of movies weren't really doing, probably pre-Gravity. I give Gravity a lot of credit for just showing how quiet space is and how terrifying that can be. Yeah. Uh, his use of effects, there's clearly a mix of models and CGI. And, like, it's seamless. It looks amazing. Everything just looks so good. Yeah, and everything absolutely. is so tense because 
these are people working at the top of the industry. Like, it's really talented people doing the best they can. And that's what I appreciated the most about this, I think. Yeah, and I actually, other than the fact that we did land on the moon, I pretty much knew nothing about the story beforehand. So I was really watching all this unaware of, um, I, I get this might be a slight spoiler. I didn't know how many losses there were. I, I really did not know that. So watching this, I went, again? Oh my God. Like this is just getting, if I'm Neil Armstrong, this is just getting scarier and scarier and scarier. And it's just, like you said, Nate, I like that you said that it's very grounded for a space movie, which is different than what we're used to. This is probably the first time where I was watching a space movie. Like, this is deterring me from ever thinking I might want to go. Anything goes wrong and you could be suffering one of the worst fates like ever. Oh, for sure. Yeah. All right. So this seems like as good a time of any for us to start to transition to our spoiler section. But before we do that, we need to get into our ratings for this film. If you're just joining us for the first time, we rate movies based on the seat scale here at the middle seats. If we see a movie that we think is amazing, it's really great, it barely has any flaws. If they has flaws, it's nitpicks, we give it a royal throne. If it's a movie with really great parts and just like tiny minor flaws, we give it a plush recliner. If it's a movie with mostly good stuff but some big flaws, we give it a wooden seat. If it's a movie with some pretty big flaws but a couple of minor good things, kind of the inverse of that, we give it a damp lawn chair. And if it's a movie with no redeeming qualities, whatsoever we give it a sleazy outhouse i'm just gonna make a prediction and saying nobody's gonna probably give first man a sleazy outhouse but what are we going to give it sorry i don't mean to box you guys in you may be i you do you boo boo i don't care yeah jake. i've been lying the whole time yeah go ahead jake <laughs> <laughs> i've been lying this entire time i hated it no um i would say this is at times pretty damn close to royal thrones but i'm gonna i'm gonna be stingy like i said earlier and a very high-end plush recliner with a large bucket of popcorn because you, if you have any interest in this movie, go see it and absolutely get it in theaters because it is beautiful. Absolutely gorgeous. And the movie itself is just really, really damn good. Like another really well done space movie in, I don't know, what is this, like six years in a row now we're getting good space movies? Gravity, Martian, Interstellar. Yeah, Gravity you know, was five Man. years ago. So probably, yeah, in that range, so we've had a lot of them. You're right. Yeah, I feel like since Gravity, we've consistently been getting some really good space movies, like one a year. Um, and this is just adding to it. Another really awesome space movie. Really, really happy with it. Upon rewatch, you know, maybe in the future it could dip into that royal throne, but I'm not going to quite go there yet. Go ahead, Nate. All right, so I know I give you guys a, a lot of flack for being indecisive on your ratings. And I think this is probably the most torn I've ever been about a rating. Because for all the stuff that we've talked about, this movie is fantastic. It has fantastic cinematography. The, all the actors do a great job. And the story is a unique one. So all of those are huge pros for me. That definitely puts it into uh, plush recliner territory for me. Almost to the point of Royal Throne. I think the, the hard part for me is that I just didn't feel connected to the story the same way that I did with La La Land and Whiplash. I didn't feel as connected to the characters, and it made for a, a harder movie for me to, to get through, just because the movie felt so cold and lifeless at points. And I'm, I'm going to stick with a plush recliner, but there, there are definitely points to this movie where I feel like it could almost go in the opposite direction, closer to wooden seat. Just because Neil Armstrong is just portrayed so coldly that it's hard to 
not just to root for them, but even to sympathize with them. Because he honestly just acts like a dick for a lot of this movie. And maybe that's real. I, I don't know enough about his history. And I think that was kind of the point of the movie was to to ground our heroes a little bit. But there's a I think there's a line between showing a realistic portrayal and showing just the worst moments. Because there's there was just no passion um, to go to space for this movie. And I felt like that's what Apollo 11 was all about. And we didn't really get that passion until we got on the moon. And we'll go, I'll go a little bit more into that point when we get into spoilers and stuff. But um, it, was, it was a very conflicting movie for me in that regard, just because it just didn't have the emotional impact that the last couple movies from Damien has had. Interesting assessment. Hmm. So you guys both went with Plush Recliner. Let me start with this. I think this movie is really exceptionally well-paced, uh, especially for the fact that it spans over two hours and has to go across seven to eight years of content. But I never felt shortchanged, and I never felt like I was having trouble tracking where we were in these people's lives. Um, for all the reasons we've mentioned, this movie is technically unbelievable. But I think, Nate, I think you're underselling a little bit for me the emotions and the investment in the story that I had. And that might be just a matter of personal preference. I did find Neil Armstrong very sympathetic. I understood that he was a flawed hero, um, but there's a very specific reason why I sympathized with him, and that requires us to go more into spoilers, so I'm going to wrap this up pretty quickly. Uh, Damien Chazelle is an amazing director. He shows it here once again. It's really telling that this is his worst movie, in my opinion, and yet, for me, I think I am going to go with The Royal Throne, guys. This is a top 10 of the year this should be in contention with all the oscar baiting stuff uh great performances this is what great movies are all about they take your expectations already high expectations and for me it went above the bar that i even had for it this is a great movie if you you absolutely need to see it on the biggest screen possible do not shortchange this film by watching it on your ipad or whatever because yeah We'll not get the same effect. <laughs> right. If Damien Chazelle doesn't come for you, Christopher Nolan will. That's all I'm going to say. There we go. <laughs> um, so to go into further why I love this movie and any problems that I might have with it, I have nitpick problems. Uh, but to do that, we should go into spoilers. If you have not seen First Man, please tune out now. If you have seen First Man, join us in our spoiler section. Whoa! Oh, spoiler alert. Spoiler alert! Excuse me, spoiler alert. First of all, one of the big reasons that there's been publicity around this movie uh, is this fucking stupid flag controversy. The whole idea that, oh, we don't see a shot of Neil Armstrong putting the flag in the moon, which of course is one of the most iconic images ever, whatever. But we see a shot of the flag. So are we good? We're good, I think. Everybody okay with this? Are you guys on board with this being the yeah. stupidest yeah. shit I, I I've think ever it's, heard? I think this is one of the stupidest controversies I've ever heard because most of this controversy happened before the movie was even released, so no one had even seen the movie yet. Right, yeah. And then all of it afterward, if you had watched the movie, you understand that the important part isn't the fact that Neil did this for the U.S. He did this because it's what he wanted to do, and that was what the whole movie had been building up to that point. So right. seeing that shot wasn't important to that character's arc. Right. You can watch a documentary if you want to see people put the flag in the moon. I don't feel like this movie is unpatriotic in any way. It's just not no, the central focus not. of the movie. So shut right. up. This is not about America <laughs> landing on the moon. This is about Neil's journey getting there. Yeah. And bada bing, bada boom. 
if you're actually mad that Damien Chazelle did not put a shot of him putting the flag on the moon, relax. You right. can love America as much as you want. There's no need to be mad about that. Just go watch a Michael Bay movie if that's what you want. Because, <laughs> like, you know, that's what that focus is. This is a movie telling an actual story. Okay? Are we good? Okay. Now that that's out of the way, let's Fantastic. get into uh, some other thoughts. Um, I guess probably the best place to start for me is kind of explain what I was alluding to in the non-spoiler section where I said that there is an emotional through line for me and a connection to Neil Armstrong. And he's so detached for most of the movie that I understand why you feel like you did, Nate. Um, but I think the movie does a really good job setting up sympathy for him when he loses his daughter early. Um, oh, that yeah. becomes a big driving force. That was a force. shock. Yeah. I was like, whoa, whoa. That it happened so early, too, was a big yeah. shock. It becomes a big driving force in his work and in his relationship with his sons and his wife for the rest of the movie. The Neil we see pre his daughter dying, very brief, but it Ryan Gosling does something with his performance that you can see a bit of a shift there. And for me, that was enough to realize that, like, okay, this is what's driving him. This is why I should still feel bad for him, even when he's putting Janet and the kids through so much. He's not being, like, an outright dick to them, but he is not being father he's of the a, year. He's emotionally unavailable. Right. Yeah, that's a great way to put it. Great way. Like, he's with them, but he's not there. Right. You know, like, the kids have a father, but not a very involved one. He's very wrapped around and, you know, focused on his own stuff. And it creates tension and unease and uncomfortableness within the family. And then he loses his friends on top of it, which hurts him even more. And then there's a lot of failing, which hurts him even more. And it's just, there is a lot of family tension and dysfunction going on for sure. For sure. Which I had no idea about. I didn't know anything about that. For me, as far as like that kind of stuff goes, um, it was all good. I wouldn't say I was ever bored or like, you know, frustrated with the movie. I, I just personally think the highs are so high, but... It's not consistently high, which is why I couldn't throw at the Royal Throne. I think there are some points that are just not engaging as, you know, his own personal journey, I guess. Right. And I see what you're saying there. I'm not going to dispute you at all. I would say for me that I was I was enjoying the family stuff just as much as the space stuff. Like the highs are really high, but for me, it wasn't like a huge drop. You know what I mean? Like it's just mm -hmm. a slight little plateau underneath mm -hmm. the peaks of the movie. You have your peaks and valleys in any movie, and the valleys are not steep here. I'm just yeah. drawing a metaphor in people's minds. I'm trying to. <laughs> um, well, well, let me get my word in as, I guess, the dissenting opinion on the family stuff. Because um, I agree that the everything that Neil Armstrong does as a father is well executed, well acted, and, and makes sense for the character. Like, yeah. he goes through that tragedy, and then he is emotionally distant from his family. And I think that entire arc works. Um, it's compelling, and it's different, it's unexpected, and makes for a compelling movie. I honestly wouldn't change too, too much there. I think the only part where it kind of hurt me um, in the movie was because we don't have any emotional connection there with Neil's character, the fact that we don't really see any emotional passion for Neil on the space stuff hurts because then he just becomes a passionless character altogether. It's very clear that he cares about his work, but we don't really see his emotional reactions in the same way. Like, he never has that moment of uh, going to space is important for me or not necessarily like a speech or a monologue or something, but he just never really emotes on how much he needs to go to space for his own personal growth. We don't never get that scene 
until the very end of the movie. And even then, it's all silent. We just never get that moment from him. And I think that's that's kind of just where the, the falling off of the movie was for me. Because he was just so cold throughout the entire experience. Yeah, he was very alien, not to be, like, punny about it. But <laughs> it, it does, it's apt there. I don't disagree with you, Nate, if that makes sense. I just mm. have a different opinion. Sure. Because the, right. they did enough setup for me at the beginning that I wasn't, like, detached from him in those moments. Jake, you put it really well where he knows how to open and knows how to close. Uh, the first ten minutes of this movie are great because it sets all that stuff up and it starts with, you know, the big exciting scene. And then the last ten minutes, I love the last scene. How just, like, subtle it is and how it reestablishes their love. How they're just looking at each other through the glass. Ooh. And I think the fact that there's no actual right answer to that is another testament to Damien Chazelle and his well, ability got, to tell a story. He does it in uh, his other two movies too. Exactly. Like that's, it's another, it's a staple of what he does where it's like, you figure it yeah. out. What are you supposed to feel about this? <laughs> Whatever you want. But, but like, it's not like a lazy way or anything like that. Right, exactly. I think it's interesting that you bring up that last scene, Drew, because you can view it as what you described where uh, Neil and his wife are trying to restart now that he's, he's finally finished his journey. Maybe he can actually start being a real father and husband again. You can look at it that way. But you can also look at it in a depressing way. And I kind of more saw it in that way. This is a man who was emotionally detached throughout the entire movie. And the last shot literally ends with him visibly separated from his wife. Right, literally quarantined. He's yeah. in quarantine and there is a literal divide between him and his wife. And you can argue that that emotional connection could never be reestablished. We don't know. The movie ends there. If you are a professional debater, you can argue both sides easily. Even if you're not, mm -hmm. you can still argue both sides. Right. We kind of are now. Like, not, like, exactly. heated. I'm not going to shank him or anything, but, like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I think it's fascinating. I And I think in all three of his movies now, he starts and ends them. He starts with a complete hook and ends with a complete wow. Actually, one, one other thing I want to get into before – I mean, we have to talk about the moon landing scene. But before that – I want to talk about the overall feel of the movie. It takes place in the 60s, and I think they nailed that. There are some almost like, not pixely, but almost like gritty kind of moments. You know what I mean? Like the cameras almost look like they're filming in an old style, and I really like that. I thought that was so cool. Yeah, they shot, I believe, in 16 and 35 millimeter, and they blew it up for IMAX. I remember reading something like that. Right, which is crazy. Yeah. That's that's great that there are still people doing that, besides Christopher yeah, Nolan again. It's not like just costume and set. The, the actual film itself feels like it was made old at times. That's such a neat little thing for a director to do that goes a long way. Like, it's just a little thing that not everybody would think to do, and I think it works so well. And then I think we absolutely, before we have... Before we run out of time, because we like to do that, we have to talk about the moon landing. You couldn't have done it better. I mean, holy hell. The quiet, the dark, the intensity, the the fear. Like, even when he steps down from the ladder and stands on the, the platform, he's literally inches from the moon's surface. But it takes him, like, minutes to decide to actually step foot, because it has never been done before. Nobody has any idea. They probably have no idea if the surface is, like... Solid, you know what I mean? He could be stepping into nothing. You have no idea what to expect. And I was, the entire time, I was like, I I never thought about this until watching this movie. Like, for us, it's the, it's the moon. For him, you don't know what the fuck is going on. You don't know what this is, what could happen. Like, so much tension over just this, this thing. And that's where a brilliant director comes in. We all know he lands on the moon and things go well. 
But Damien Chazelle still manages to make your heart go a million beats a minute while watching it, even though you know the result. And that is a testament to a great director, like Andrew said earlier. Absolutely. I'm so glad you brought the scene up, Jake, because I, I love that moment when the doors open and you hear that little pop of the air rushing out and all of a sudden it is complete silence. And then that long shot of looking over the landscape, the moon, earth Beautiful. in the background. Gorgeous. I, I said this. I said this before in another Ryan Gosling movie, where um, almost every frame could be a wallpaper, and that's the shot right oh, there. It's, the it's the shot of the moon there—that is the wallpaper shot. It's I gorgeous. I love movie experiences like this where you you yourself can feel the audience engage. You can hear slight adjustments in the seats, slight breaths of air coming out. Like you can feel everybody engaged. Just you know, everything is, everything drops and everybody's paying attention. And I, I loved it. I right. absolutely loved it. All right, guys, we got to move on here. Cause we have a whole nother yeah. review to do. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yes, we do. Let's, let's start to wrap it up here. Nate in 30 seconds or less final thoughts on first man. Uh, if this was under any other director, I probably would have given this a wooden seat. I wasn't feeling as emotionally invested as I would have liked to, um, for a movie that really tried to portray Space flight, not as glory to what humankind can accomplish, but to how absolutely terrifying and heartbreaking it can be for the people that were involved with the process. Damien Chazelle is absolutely the only reason this movie goes up to a plush recliner for me, because it is just executed so well. Acted phenomenally, looks gorgeous, sounds amazing, and it makes what would have been a passionless movie into something that is gripping to watch and incredibly unique to cinema up to this point. Um, I very much enjoyed it. I definitely recommend that everyone see it for themselves to figure out what you think in your own personal views. Yeah, just, uh, I think this, if not before, this cements Damien Chazelle as one of the best directors working today and making a movie where everybody knows the ending is hard enough, but somehow reinventing the space genre when it's been doing very well for you know half a decade now he has somehow still made a different feel a different mindset a different idealistic tone to it you know made a, a very familiar story you know gripping and interesting it's just all testaments to a great director so i mean if you have any interest in this or space movies you got to see it and see it on the biggest screen really 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 good stuff um I've gone this long without even talking about any problems I had. The only minor problem I had is that I felt like some of the supporting characters were maybe a little underdeveloped. Like, I wish I got more I got more of Jason Clark's character, of course, tragically dies. And I wish I'd gotten more of Corey Stoll as Buzz Aldrin because I think he does a really good job. And there's a great scene with the two of them at a press conference. You just see the charisma of Buzz Aldrin versus Neil Armstrong. And it does a really good job of contrasting that. And again, it comes down to that. We mm -hmm. leave this movie knowing so much about Neil Armstrong and knowing so much about the space mission itself, and that's because of Damien Chazelle's talent. He is a wonderful director. He will probably be nominated for Best Director again. I hope this movie is in contention for Best Picture. One of my top five of the year so far. Absolute royal throne. Loved it. So how do you follow that up? <laughs> let's move on to our second review of the night. From Damien to Drew, let's talk about bad times at the El Royale. First time at the El Royale? You have the option to stay in either California or Nevada. This is not a place for a priest, Father. You shouldn't be here. Have 
You watch me? I only watch who they tell me to watch. Who's they? Would you mind opening the door? No, I ain't gonna do that. Which side are you on? Right, wrong, red, or black? I've done horrible things. Kills everybody. Shit happens. Get the whiskey. To be true. Bad Times at the El Royale is directed by Drew Goddard, who last directed a movie back in 2012, which the brilliant Cabin in the Woods. Even though he hasn't directed a movie in six years at this point, he's had his hands in a bunch of high-profile uh, media things. Helped write The Martian, uh, which of course is the great Matt Damon space movie. We just actually alluded to it in the last review. Uh, he had a big hand in Daredevil Season 1 on Netflix. He is an executive producer on The Good Place, which is one of my favorite comedies on TV right now. Pretty much anything he touches, there's at least part of quality to. Uh, this movie takes place in 1969, so a year after First Man, so we kind of just moved along nicely. Four strangers converge on the El Royale. It's a novelty hotel right smack dab in between Nevada and California. And these four different strangers, they have mysteries surrounding all of them pretty much. There's Father Flynn, a priest played by Jeff Bridges. There's Darlene Sweet. She's a talented singer working gig to gig. She's played by Cynthia Erivo. There's Dwight Broadbeck. He's a fast-talking vacuum salesman. He's played by, of course, John Hamm. And there's Emily Summerspring. She's a standoffish, anti-authority mystery woman played by Fifty Shades of Grey's Dakota Johnson. I shouldn't disrespect her like that. She's a great actress otherwise. <laughs> um, the concierge there is Miles Miller. Uh, he is played by Lewis Pullman. And basically everybody has secrets. Eventually, a mysterious man enters the fold, Billy Lee. He's played by Thor himself, Chris Hemsworth. So, guys, I've been looking forward to this movie since it was announced. I love Drew Goddard. I loved Cabin in the Woods. What do you guys think of Bad Times at the El Royale? Jake, let's start with you. A um, lot of hype, a lot of anticipation around this movie. I thought the trailers looked really fun. Great cast. You know, really great mind behind it. Um, and overall, I thought it was... Very good, very entertaining. You know, I like these kind of concept stories where a bunch of, not a, not quite a whodunit because it's not a murder mystery, but, you know, a bunch of characters come together with secrets and they all kind of get tangled and intertwined and unfold together. I really enjoy those, especially when they're done well. And I overall thought this was done well. It's just kind of, it doesn't quite reach a great mark, you know? It's a really good idea. You could tell he spent a lot of time on it. It's got a lot of it's got a lot of, you know, cool ideas. You can tell he's got a vision for it. Like, the hotel looks great. There's little little fun things here and there. Overall, really good performances, too. Like, everybody turns in a good performance. You can tell there's just a lot of talent and a lot of, you know, good visions put into this. There's just something about it that it doesn't quite come together perfectly like everybody had hoped. Truthfully, I think the reviews are a little harsh. 60 on Metascore is good, not great, and I think it's better than that. It's also kind of a hard movie to talk about without spoilers because there's a lot that goes on behind the scenes and behind the hotel walls, literally. So I don't know how much I want to go into feelings until spoilers. So probably going to be a semi-quick review for me. But overall, I enjoyed it. I thought it was good, and I think it's getting a little harsh reviews from some people. I think it's better than the critics were saying. But um, I don't know. Overall, good time at, as the bad times. <laughs> <laughs> What about you, Nady? I'm, I'm actually very interested to see how you react to this one, Jake, because I got so many vibes from Pulp Fiction from this yeah, movie. Yeah, I thought some of that, it, too. It has a very Tarantino style. For like sure. It's divided into chapters the same way that his yeah, movies yeah, tend sure. to be. And this movie definitely 
draws a lot of parallels to Pulp Fiction in that there's no real mystery to solve. It's just kind of one story, start to finish, and it's how the characters respond to that journey that they take them on. And I kind of feel similarly where this movie has some really cool aspects, but it overall just falls a little flat for me. It just needed to commit to something, whether it was committing to the characters, whether it was committing to how creepy the hotel was, or just pick like another through line. But it was just a little too scattered for me. That didn't quite have the focus that it needed to, to pull off this kind of high concept film. Um, Which was a shame, because I was definitely excited for this one too. It just didn't quite work for me. It was just missing something. And Mm -hmm. what that was is debatable, but... Uh, definitely something was not present that needed to be. I'm very interested that you guys went to Pulp Fiction in your head at first because for me, it, the most common comparison, I absolutely, I even wrote down, this is Drew Goddard's Tarantino movie. Um, but for me, this is The Hateful Eight. It's a bottle film. Mm-hmm. They're all trapped in a certain location. Obviously, it goes back and forth in time. It plays with chapters. Uh, I think Hateful Eight does that in not as much as Pulp Fiction, so I see that connection. Um, yeah. I'm, I'm going to sound like a broken record. I kind of agree with you guys. This is a good movie that like is frustrating because it, there is a great movie somewhere trapped inside of a movie that is two hours and 20 minutes long. The pacing here is way all over the place for me. It's just choppy the way the thing is edited, the way that they insert certain scenes, the way that they replay certain scenes. Like we, the setup's really good and I really like the third act. Um, and we can't really get into why until we get into spoilery sections. But the the excellent set design makes it fun. The stylish direction. There's some really good camera work here. Uh, the mysteries themselves of who these people are are intriguing. But the second act, just some of the decisions they made, it felt like the movie was kind of skipping inside the VCR machine. Like it just kept going back to certain moments and not progressing forward. I would have liked a more linear approach to the storytelling. Uh, it was a two hour and 20 minute movie and it mm-hmm. did feel like a two hour and 20 minute movie, which is a decent sized problem when this movie, in my opinion, could probably be closer to two and we'll get into why going forward. But I'm, I'm not trying to sell it short. Uh, just coming mm-hmm. off of Cabin in the Woods, it's not as good as and sharp and airtight as Cabin in the Woods is. That movie's excellently paced. Right. Uh, they, there's not absolutely. a – Right. There's not like a false beat in that movie as far as pacing goes. Nobody's doing a bad job or anything. I think it's more just script and pacing problems that brought it down for me. For me, this really felt like he knew exactly what he wanted. He just had trouble putting it together. Like, he clearly has a vision. He clearly knew this, this style that he wanted. Um, and I'm, I, I'm always interested to see how they work out when there's a lot of... There's not one main character and they all have something going on and they all come together. I always think it's interesting. You knew... Like, it's very clear he knew exactly what he wanted. He just really had trouble with his execution, I think. Um, like, maybe he could have used just a little bit more time, maybe just another second opinion or something, just somebody else to help him touch it up. Yeah, that would have helped, yeah. Mm. Yeah, it just seems like he just couldn't quite get it perfect on his own. He did a good job, just not not 100%. Maybe he needed like a, because Joss Whedon played a big part, of course, the director of the Avengers, and he has like geek fandom throughout the entire 21st century. He played a big part helping produce Cabin in the Woods. Maybe he needed someone like that. So like Mm. some people work better in collaboration. There's nothing wrong with that at all. Drew Goddard is a really talented guy. I'm not taking that away from him, but that could have helped. You're absolutely right, Jake. Yeah, it just felt like there was something else he needed and he couldn't quite find it on his own. 
So this is definitely a difficult movie to talk about without spoilers because everybody's got a backstory, which is kind of spoilery. And everything that it, this builds up to is also obviously spoiler. So it kind of sounds like we're just ready to dive in. Right. Well, first of all, we got to give our ratings. But yes, after sure. that, we should yes, absolutely sure. go ready to move on. Ready, ready to move on. Jake, you are on a roll. Why don't you do that? Sure. Um, so with Bad Times at the El Royale, I recognize the, the flaws and the imperfections. But for me, it was still good enough, entertaining enough, made well enough to uh, reach its way into a plush recliner. A lower... A definitely a lower one than First Man and Like a Star is Born. I'd say those are, you know, reaching for a royal throne and just missing it. This one is elevating itself above a wooden seated to plush recliner, but just not quite great. It just kind of falls short of some some great stuff. And no, no bag of popcorn. You can see this with or without a theater and still enjoy it or not the same. I'm a little more down on this one, Jake. Uh, this one's a wooden seat for me. Bad Times at the El Royale definitely has a lot of things working in its favor. I think the cast does a great job. I think the tone that the movie sets is really, really good. Uh, I just wish the plot moved in a direction. <laughs> it just kind of, it just kind of happens, <laughs> for lack of a better word. Um, and uh, there's definitely some compelling moments. There's definitely some really fun scenes. There's definitely even some funny scenes mixed in there, but. Overall, just it felt a little messy, and I just needed a little bit, little bit more focus as to what this movie wanted to say. It's all right if it didn't need to have like a profound message or anything. The plot just, the plot just fell a little flat for me. So wouldn't see. Um, I'd recommend people go see it all the same. Um, but I'll agree, you don't need to see this one in theaters, which is a shame because I wish people did. I know because these kind of <laughs> movies could use the money, but. They need help in Hollywood, and they have not been getting it recently. And unfortunately, uh, this one isn't going to Yeah, help. it didn't do very well at the box office, obviously, on opening weekend. That was a big struggle for them. Uh, I am right. Jake, you basically took the words out of my mouth. I'm trying to figure out where exactly I stand on it because it's right in that in-between. I think overall I had fun with it, and I do want to support original movies. So in my own little way, I'm going to at least push it up to a – it's a plush recliner from the El Royale. It's kind of rotten and gross, but it's still comfy. Um, it's a good, it's a good movie. A rotten plush recliner is a horrible adjective. <laughs> it's better than a rotten wooden seat, in my opinion, but or a even a sturdy wooden seat because you can get splinters from those. I think that's the second time I've said that in two weeks. And just very afraid of splinters, everybody. <laughs> I don't like splinters. They freaked me out as a kid. Um, like I said, this is a good movie that just really needed a, a trim. It did. It needed a trim, and it needed. Just a little bit more focus. I agree with that. Like, these are actors having a lot of fun. They do a really good job. I th- I found actually probably the newcomers, uh, Arivo and Pullman, uh, were two of the more impressive actors in the movie. Uh, and then Chris Hemsworth. We'll talk a little bit more, more about him in a second, but I've got things to say about him. Good time. Not a bad time at the El Royale. You had a good time, but you don't have a great time. And we're going to have <laughs> a great time because we're now going to go into our spoiler section. Whoa! Oh, spoiler alert. Spoiler alert! Spoiler alert! Excuse me, spoiler alert! So, Jake has his stopwatch ready. He's going to time me and kind of see how long that it takes me to get through everybody's motivations. I'm going to go as quickly as possible in the time that I have. Here we go. So, Darlene, she has no motivation. She's a nice person. So, that's that's done there. Father Flynn, his name is actually Doc O'Reilly. He's a bank robber. He's masquerading to pick up money from a heist that was left behind by his partners and a great cameo by Nick Offerman and a great opening scene, by the way. 
They were killed in the <laughs> it's past. It's a shame that it's only a cameo. Yeah. Um, I was like, hold on a second. Right. He has Alzheimer's too, it seems. Uh, it's very conveniently timed when the plot needs him to have it. He can't remember the right room he's in. Sometimes he can't remember his name. It's all over the place, as Alzheimer's is. Dwight, John Hamm, actually named Laramie Sullivan. He's an FBI agent. He's there to investigate the motel. He finds wiring and he retrieves film of someone, like a big public profile person that we never actually see. Um, which I think is a really interesting choice. We'll get to that in a second. Emily kidnapped her own sister, Rose, played by Kaylee Spanny, to rescue her from the cult run by Billy Lee, who's kind of like Charles Manson, but probably even more, less crazy. I don't know, he's pretty crazy. Anyway, Billy Lee is Chris Hemsworth's character. Miles, the concierge, he is a Vietnam sniper who killed over 100 people when he was overseas. We don't find this out until very late in the film, and I have something to say about that as well. Uh, He's a heroin addict, He's looking for salvation from Father Flynn, who, of course, is not actually a priest. <laughs> anyway, that was definitely over a minute, but I think it was probably a minute and a half. A minute 16, not bad. Okay, I'll take it. That's fine. A time do. Yeah. I did. <laughs> I'll get better next time we do Bad Times at the El Royale 2. Um, <laughs> now that that's all on the table, kind of a free-form thing, Jake, I'll let you start the discussion. What do you want to focus on? Um, I think it starts off really, really interesting. I was really interested in what the hell was going on with everybody and where this was going to go. The second act, I get why he won everybody's point of view, but it just, it could have been done a little bit better. And I then I feel like the third act was a little annoying at times. Um, like the, the sniper thing, I was like that, you know, the last 20 minutes of the movie, very convenient to throw it in there. Same thing, the father all of a sudden, you know, can't remember his own name. Well, that sucks because now he's in danger. You know, maybe that really would happen to somebody with Alzheimer's, but still as a, as a story, as a plot point, how convenient for him. I just found the third act to be, a, I don't know, a bit of a tonal change, like it all comes together and it's just a little anticlimactic in the third act for me. As far as Chris Hemsworth goes, because he's mainly only in the third act, there were points that I really did like him and then some points where I thought he kind of lost his way a little bit. Although there is, when he kills Emily, Dakota Johnson's character, I was like, ooh, okay, balls, good for you. I'll take that. (laughs) Um, And then actually the very ending felt kind of weird as well. Um, Darlene Sweet and fake priest uh, Jeff Bridges going off together at the end I was like that's it's nice for them but it's not quite fitting with the rest of the story I didn't realize I was supposed to care about their Mm. friendship that much yeah like it does develop but it just feels a little out of place I feel like this movie suffers from playing its cards too early because we find out almost right away that the hotel is keeping tabs you know what Nate I I agree with you part of that's due to the trailers because it reveals it there right away Um, but it's very clear from the get-go that something's off, but then we learn what the off thing is in the first 15 minutes, and everything else is just kind of padding mm-hmm. till we get to the point where Billy Lee shows up. And you're right, a lot of thing pretty, a lot of it unravels in the first half, which is kind of weird. Yeah, John Hamm is revealed to be an FBI agent right away, um, but then they kill him off really quickly, and he was such a fun presence was. in the he movie was a really that fun his disappearance is definitely noticeable right like this movie needed to keep him around a little bit longer i think because all the other characters are good in their own right but definitely flattered to how intriguing and how fun honestly he talks well he was definitely the top candidate to get off early they like you cast someone like that to kill him early in these kind of movies i feel like i guess so (laughs) like i don't know who else would have gone i guess jeff bridges probably would have been next in line but then you wouldn't be able to have his whole story right which drew goddard clearly wanted clearly yeah 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 i just i think it's it's good enough, but you can you can feel the slop. Like, it's not bad. It's not messy, but it's not as 
clear cut as it, it could have been. Right. I think the word I kept using uh, is choppy, and I think that's a really good... Like, it felt like certain segments were dragged and dropped to random spots in the movie. Like, we find out way too late that Miles was this expert sniper. Yeah, like, it's supposed to like, be... Yeah. Seeing that flashpoint at the climax of the movie. Yeah, like, I was like, this on. is... I'm like, you revealed everybody's backstory but his, and now you're... It's just very out of place. Well, here's the thing. There was a clear point where they could have done this. When he originally, like, helps Jeff Bridges after he got hit in the head with a bottle, they have a nice conversation in a booth. And that could have been the scene where we found out where, you know, like, not right. this random spot where things are actually happening. Like, we, there's been simmering tension for 15, 20 minutes that Chris Hemsworth mm-hmm. builds. Um, and I thought the third act became the Chris Hemsworth show pretty much. Yeah. I didn't think it was a problem. I liked I liked him a lot in this movie. But, you know, it's a lot of waiting around for somebody to make a move. And Jeff Bridges is the one to eventually make the move. And then, again, that pacing completely snapped. Same thing with... I, like, I just don't need to see John Hamm's death from all these different angles. It feels like we're moving two steps back with every one step forward. Even if it's not like that in the story, even if we're getting new details at every moment, as a viewer in the moment, it takes you out of it because you're like, okay, can we move along here? I've seen this already. Like, I again, mm-hmm. I get mm-hmm. what he was trying to do, but yeah. it's not the right decision in my opinion. I didn't mind – that was like the midpoint of the movie – and it sounds like he really wanted that to be a turning point for the story and the characters and get all of them involved. I just feel like there's probably a better way to do it. Right. I didn't mind it, and I get what he wanted to do. I just felt like it could have been a little a little cleaner. If like going back to the Hateful Eight analogy, it's like the intermission in Hateful Eight. The first person dies in the intermission of Hateful Eight. Mm-hmm. And that's supposed right. to be the turning point because the second half of Hateful Eight is just everybody fucking gets murdered. In different ways. Everybody losing their minds. Right. It, like, that movie goes yeah. crazy at intermission. But it doesn't work as effectively because, I mean, Quentin Tarantino doesn't go back and show that scene eight times. You know what I mean? That was my that was my biggest thing. We've been kind of slamming the movie for a little bit. I do want to shift to what I liked. Yeah, that's fine because I have positives as well. Yeah, no, I definitely have positives. I think we're yeah. being – it's tough love because we really wanted to love it. And I think we're a little frustrated, all of us, it seems like. Yeah, that sounds fair. So – if I had to commend the movie on one thing that I really liked, I feel like it was it wasn't afraid to let the audience figure out what was going on without saying it outright. Um, there are a couple really fun details throughout the movie that I really appreciated. Um, one of them was like when John Hamm first started going through his hotel room, you saw very clearly two different sets of wiretaps, and you get the sense oh shit, he's out there looking for one set of his own taps because he's working with the FBI. Um, But then he discovers the second set and realizes that there's something else going on. And then he calls up um, people on the phone and says, yeah, they're not all ours. Like, that's fun. That was just a cool Mm -hmm. little detail that they never explain. Yes, I work for the FBI. And yes, um, we found something different. Like, no, the audience gets to figure that out. I think the other one that's even more subtle, we see different shots of the TV in the lobby every now and then showing a serial killer on the loose and it's implied but never outright stated that rose who is dakota johnson's sister's character um is implied to be the murderer in those uh clips of the news but we never outright find out for sure and i think it's those fun little details that the audience gets to figure out on their own as they're trying to unravel the mysteries of the el royale that are that are fun and i think the movie could have done well with even more of them yeah that's a fair point 
I actually didn't quite pick up on the the second one, the more subtle Rose one, but I did love the pretty much everything with John Hamm, honestly. Like, first off, his subtlety finding the wiretaps, I really liked that scene a lot. And I was really intrigued, like, oh my god, how many wiretaps are there? What the hell is this place? Um, but even his character as a whole, like, he's polite and lets everybody go ahead of him, and then he gets frustrated by himself letting everybody go ahead. Like, he's just very clearly a well-written character with a good actor embodying him overall. I definitely right. liked him a lot. Although... That character might be a terrible FBI agent because don't you want to <laughs> not stand out? And this guy's like, oh, I do Claire and all this shit. And like, dude, <laughs> you're drawing a lot of attention to yourself for trying to be like under the radar there to do a job. I'm just saying like that that's, true. that's quite a flamboyant cover. <laughs> it's hiding in plain sight. I don't knock yeah, it for whatever. it. Yeah, whatever. Just, that's just a <laughs> – Everyone wanted to get away with them because it was so Food annoying. for thought. Yeah, I, I, I knew there was something up, but I wouldn't have picked up he was an FBI agent. Something that I think this movie does a really great job at, especially in the first act, there's probably one standout scene where it does it in each one. I think it has, like, this really tense scene in each of them. And it uses um, Darlene singing really well. Uh, there is yeah. a amazing, yeah. like, probably the standout camera work of the movie when John Hamm is going back and forth in the hidden hallway for the first time. Uh, and he turns mm. the sound on in Darlene's room, and she's singing, and she provides a echoey soundtrack as he goes from room to room and the yeah. camera just follows like that him a lot. that was really well done and I also that's really fun. liked when Jeff Bridges is pulling out the ply boards and I'd argue that's the best scene in the movie yeah I, I would say if, if not the best one of the best for sure without a doubt yeah it's so tense. Both of those are so up. tense. Dakota Johnson is trying to figure out what's going on and Darlene is singing and clapping on beat so that Jeff Bridges can get the money it's a really tense scene because we've already seen what Emily is capable of at this point. It, right. Yeah, really well done. And there are moments like that where this movie's like, oh, amazing. This is what I came here for. Yeah, and then there are others exactly. that I'm this like. This is like, mm-hmm. like, you know it's there. You know there's a good director at work. He's just having trouble finding it all. Right. And that's it's a sophomore yeah. slump. I'm not going to lose any faith in Drew Goddard from this because the, the good pieces are there. This is not mm. a disaster by any means or anything like that. I would call it still a good movie. Right. And that's why I threw a plush recliner. And I actually, I do want to bring up one one final point. I wonder if he has, you know, ending issues. Because I think his third act is a bit off tone, maybe. A bit out of place. And I felt like the Cabin in the Woods off point was the third act as well. So I wonder if he as a director has trouble ending movies. I would say the... F- I would say the final few minutes of Cabin in the Woods are off. The third act is great in Cabin in the Woods. Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, like, with all the gods. And even in this movie, like, this is my last thing that I want to bring up before we wrap things up. The final exchange between Billy Lee's character and uh, Darlene Sweet's character, um, I love that exchange where she just puts him in his place. You are just one of those people that uh, wants to hear himself talk and screw who he wants to screw. Like, that was that was yeah. an awesome awesome character moment that I was I was smiling the whole time. That was really really fun. That was a stand up and cheer moment. Yeah. Uh, let Jake final thoughts on bad times at the El Royale. Um, overall good. Like if you if you like mysteries, if you like interesting plots and interesting characters and like you know multiple ones set in a set location, like this is a very distinct kind of movie, and it's not a bad one. Like you, if you enjoy that kind of stuff, you should definitely go see it. It's worth the watch. It's just you know like we said earlier, it's tough love where. It's imperfect, and we wanted it to be better than it was. It's still good. We were just hoping for more from a talented guy with a talented cast and really good trailers. It all seemed like it was heading in the right direction. It just didn't quite live up to what we were all hoping. But overall, still good. I, would, you know, I wouldn't you know, I would mind watching it again. I'm sure I will. 
Um, it's definitely worth the watch. It's just kind of a shame, but I'll still look forward to whatever he does next for sure. Nate, final thoughts on Bad Times of the L Royale. Yeah, not to hammer in an overused joke, but I, I still had a good time at the Bad Time at the L Royale. Mm-hmm. It was enjoyable. It was something different, something new. Uh, I just wish that it was executed a little bit better, had a little bit more focus, and just did something with all the cool characters and the location that they put them in. I'd, I'd still recommend it. Um, I would I would love to see something something more in this type of movie because I I miss these types of movies. Fun original ideas that just give us something something fresh and hoping that the next project by Drew Goddard lives up to the hype. I kind of echo everybody's sentiments here. Uh, it's a good movie with elements that are great, but unfortunately there are certain things holding it back. I do think he is capable of making another great movie. I'm sure we will see it sooner rather than later. That will do it for our review of Bad Times at the El Royale and for this mega-packed episode of the Middle Seats Podcast. Thank you for joining us through all of our great movie talk today. Nate, where can they find more movie talk on the web? Alrighty, so here's how you can get in touch with us. Please like, comment, and subscribe to our YouTube channel, The Middle Seats. You can also listen to us on the go on both SoundCloud and iTunes. And any questions, comments, or updates on the show, keep an eye on our Facebook and Twitter, both at The Middle Seats. If you like what you hear and you want to see more, let us know and spread the word. Be sure to check out our spin-off episodes, Freeze Frame, where we jump in a time machine and talk about a movie related to the movies we're reviewing this week. On the latest Freeze Frame, we talk about Cabin in the Woods, which of course is Drew Goddard's horror comedy masterpiece. Next week on the main show, we're going to be joining infamous serial killer Michael Myers and talking about the reboot of the Halloween franchise. That'll do it for us here on the Middle Seats Podcast for Jake Hensler and Nate Longarini. I'm Andrew Auger. Keep that seat warm, everyone. We'll be back soon.